Good morning. Good morning. Hopefully all you are excited to be here as I am. I really look forward to these times. This week was a little different. Usually I have a sermon well ahead of time, and I did this one as well. I think the last time I talked to Daniel and some others, I said it's going to be a history lesson, so some background about Jesus, but it just never did get quite feeling right. So I finally found my inspiration about Tuesday or Wednesday from a message I heard and some songs and stuff, and even a tattoo that I got. So that's, <laughs> that kind of changed it up very enough. But if you had to put a title on this sermon, I guess it would be Just a Nobody. In doing research on my family tree, I came across the, the Christ family crest and motto. The motto of the Christ plan is, life is short, glory is eternal, fight hard. Now there are two different schools of thought about what its meaning is. One being that while life is short and fleeting, heaven will last for all eternity. So work hard to make sure you and as many other possible people possible go there with you. The other is that life is short and will we all be soon forgotten. So fight hard, win glory for yourself and fame that you may be remembered long after you're gone. Most people seem to some extent want to be somebody's. Often growing up I would have was told to act like I was somebody. Usually when I was acting really bad. Uh, encouraged by my teachers and God's counselors throughout schools to grow up and make something of myself. Don't be a ditch digger, but here I am. <laughs> they must have known something I did. Uh, no one seems wants to be a nobody. Every, uh, no one wants to be forgotten. Even those who would run off to the wilderness to get away from all the madness and stuff to be by themselves when their last days would come would more often than not carve their name into a rock, a tree, or a camp, just something that they would not be forgetting that so that when somebody else come along, they would know that they was here. In the book written about my family, Mountain Men, Moonshiners, and Miners, there's a story in there. Uh, one of the cousins down the road received a ward of the state back in the, I guess this would have been back in the, the 20s or 30s or somewhere like that. But the state paid him 3 to $5 a week, which was big money to him, to take care of this old man. No one knew his name. He, he talked some kind of foreign language. They didn't know what it was, German, Italian, whatever. But they was paid to make sure he had room, food, and a place to sleep. And so he would sit there his days on the front porch just, just being to himself. Well, they found him one morning dead in his room. So they took him up on the hillside and they buried him. And there's nothing there to mark this place or anything else. And that really disturbed one of the young children. And so he started trapping, working, anything he could do to make money. And about to kill himself doing it. And his mom said, well, why are you doing this? He says, because I don't want to be forgotten. I want to buy my headstone so that when I die, someone will know I lived. I was here. I existed. And so that, that really meant a lot to him and touched him a lot. And so everyone, it seems, wants to fight and struggle to be somebody's for earthly glory, fame, or maybe even remembrance, but simply not to be forgotten. The problem, though, lies in the fact that most people like me, we are nobodies. If I die today, it's not going to make the papers in Russia. It's not going to make CNN. It won't even make the, well, it might make the damn paper, but it certainly won't make the Lexington paper. Uh, and we think that the world, and the world thinks as well, that it's a bad thing to be a nobody. But it's not. I'm here to tell you that this morning. You see, nobodies are what God seeks out more than anything else. Nobodies are what He needs and what He uses. We've got the example of Moses. Moses was born a Hebrew slave. Now you may say, well, he was prominent to put him into the house of Pharaoh. Well, no, he went back to the desert. He was a nobody. He was a shepherd, right? just content to be forgotten. 
But that's what God needed to use him for. He couldn't use him while he was Pharaoh's or right hand man. Gideon was a scared farmer. Gideon was in the smallest tribe, the smallest man, and his family was the smallest part of that. He says, I'm nobody. But God was able to use him. David was a small shepherd boy. He was so small and so unthought of that when they came and said, let me see all your sons, well, just leave him on out there in the patch. We don't even need to bring him in because he's, he's nothing. He's nobody. Peter. Peter was an uneducated fisherman. He worked his life making his living with his hands in his back. He was nobody. He couldn't even read or write more than likely. The Bible tells us over and over that God calls and uses the weak, the small, the feeble, the frail, the poor, and short, the nobodies, and the never was us to do great, marvelous things. Amen. If you read the Hall of Fame in Hebrews, it's full of nobodies. So in a world that says you must fight, fall, and scratch, and you make your way to the top, be somebody, I say, count me out. Or as Billy Joel says, if that's moving up, then I'm moving out. There's a wonderful song by Matthew West and uh, Casting Crowns, which uh, is called Nobody. And I want to share some of the lyrics with you this morning. It's why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line. With all the other not quites, with all the other never get it right. But it turns out you're, they're the ones you've been looking for all this time. Moses had stage fright, and David brought a rock to unsure fight. You picked 12 outsiders no one would have chosen, and you changed the world. Well, the moral of the story is everyone's got a purpose. So when I hear the devil start to say to me, who do you think you are? I say, I'm just a nobody. Trying to tell everybody about somebody who saved my soul. So let, so let me go down, down, down in history as another blood-bought, faithful member of a family. If all, and if that, if they all forget my name, well, that's fine with me, because I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. And that's, that's a very touching song. That's part of their inspiration for the day. The Bible tells us over a hundred different times that God hates or can't use the proud. He hates them because he can't use them. They will not bend to his will. It's not, it's not simply because they're rich or they're important. No, God uses those people too. It's because these people can't let go of the stuff. They can't let go of what it means to them to be a nobody. You see, before a vessel can be used, it must first often be empty. And therein lies the problem. Most people refuse to be empty, to give up who they are and who they want to be, and so can never be used by God to their fullest. There have been so many that have come all so close, but only to stumble at the last little bit because they couldn't be empty. They couldn't let it go. We all know the story about David and Lot. How the Philistines had this great big old giant, eight or nine foot tall. Did you know that Israel had a giant too? Israel had their own giant that was perfectly fitted to battle him, but he didn't because he couldn't let go. The average person is what, six foot tall? And what do we know of Saul, King Saul of Israel? He was head and shoulders above all the people in Israel. So that would make Saul probably about seven rings. So there, Saul was the best one fit to fight this giant. But he refused to go. We find him hiding in his tent when David arrives to take care of his problem. Because he didn't want to risk letting go. He didn't want to risk losing, losing that prestige and that glory. Again, when God called him to go destroy the Amorites, he couldn't do it. He had to save that gold. He had to save the rope. He had to show them that he was somebody. And so he failed. Judas is another person. Judas, we see that, was full of the Holy Spirit. He went out, he cast out demons, he healed people, he did miracles. 
But he couldn't let go of that money, that need for money, to want to be someone, to fit in with the scribes and the Pharisees, to be looked up to. And so he ended up betraying Jesus. We see the story of the rich young ruler who refused to let go of his money. God says everything he did, he did right, but he just would not let go of this one thing. And we never hear of him again. In Mark 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, we see the son, the parable of the son. Especially in verses 18 and 19, it says, Those sown among the thorns are another sort. They are the people who hear the word of God, but then the worries of the world, the needs to be somebody's, the lure of riches and the craving of other things in truth and choke out the word of God, and it bears no fruit. In Luke uh, chapter 14, verses uh, 16 through 24, we uh, see that according to Jesus, everyone gets invited, but all the somebodies are usually way too busy to be, to be bothered to attend. Jesus replied with this story, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent to his servant to tell the guests to come to the banquet is ready. But they all began to make excuses. One said, I just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five pair of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what, he'd said, what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly to the streets, to the alleys and to the towns and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the nobodies. Uh, after the servant had done all this, he reported it. There is still room for more. So the master said, go out into the country lanes behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that my house may be full. For none of those who I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet feast. They made excuses thinking as many in the world today that these would be acceptable things. You know, this is, this is understandable. You know, God says, I can't. I've got to go make a living. I've got work to do. I've got to get that done. Another says, hey, I've got lands to clear. I've got animals to feed. I've got crops to take care of. Another one says, I've got family responsibilities and obligations. You know, we think this is all right. But the world will say these excuses are okay. But we aren't worshiping the world. Or at least we're not if we're expecting to go to heaven and be pleased with God. God will not accept these excuses as Jesus finally just told us. Jesus says these excuses made God furious. They made him angry. So he sent out and got all the nobodies to come and worship him and give him the attention he so deserves. To those who were too busy, too important, he closed the doors and they were not allowed to enter in. God wants the nobodies, those who are willing to empty themselves so he can fill them, so they can worship him and honor him. That's why we're created for. We're created for that purpose to worship God. And that is, the Bible tells us, a reasonable service. Not only does he want them, don't want this, but he craves it. He desires it. He earnestly seeks after them and chases them down. In John 4, uh, verses 5 through 23, we find that the Lord yet again is seeking a nobody, a Samaritan woman, no less. And not only that, but she's a fornicator and an adulteress. A woman who is shacked up with what will soon probably be husband number six. But she is seeking God. And God is seeking her. She wants to know more. She knows there should be more to her worship. That something is missing. Now, leaving her cold, flat, empty. So she is seeking to understand, like a lot of people, what is worship? I mean, that's the million dollar question after all, isn't it? What is worship? Worship is simply uh, 
isn't as complicated as we've made it out to be. It's quite simple. Worship is the contemplation of God. It is being absorbed in Him and Him alone who is of supreme importance and worth. And is therefore worthy of us attributing to Him our praise. Worship comes from the old Anglo-Saxon word, worship. We simply just dropped off the TH from it over the years. It's condition of being of worth and deserving of worthiness. <clears throat> but somebody can't do this because to them, they're the most valuable thing ever was. To them, their life is what they want is the most important. In Hebrew, the word used means to bow down to, to humble oneself and to kiss for. But the somebody's can't do this either because they refuse to humble themselves. Too proper or vain to bow down to anyone. In the Greek, the word means to celebrate someone. But again, the, nobody, the somebodies can't do this either because if it's not about celebrating them, then they're just not interested, bro. Of all the somebody, <coughs> of the somebodies and want to be, Gordon Dahl wrote the following. He said that it's been his observation that the average American tends to worship their work, to work at their play, and to play at their worship. Just think about that. To worship their work, according to the old Anglo-Saxon word, which means the prize above all else. That means they put their work above God, can't come to church, can't find time to Bible study, or time to worship Him in their daily busy schedule. And it's really easy to get caught up in it. I myself will get caught, caught up in that. Uh, I'm just as guilty as anyone at work when they sign overtime. They sign it at the start of the week. So I always make sure I'm going to get my Saturdays off. So I always work out all my overtime the first part of the week so I got it done by. And that's wrong. I shouldn't have done it. And I apologize to y'all for doing that. I should make sure that I leave that place at 5 o'clock, at least 5 o'clock on Wednesday, so I can be right here with you all worshiping. Because God is that more, is much more important than my Saturday's office. And that was wrong for me to do that. And like I said, I apologize. And I'll make it my mission in the future to make sure I'm here even Wednesday nights no matter what. Uh, somebody's always put their jobs above their family. No time uh, for them either. No time to play catch with the kids or read books to their children because work is their number one priority. Too exhausted, burned out to be there for their spouses, either mentally, emotionally, or physically. And friends, what's that? You know, it's pretty sad at, at my place of work, they got a little flyer, a little poster. And it says, everyone at work is not your friend. Come in, do your job, get paid, and go home. And they love that to me, but that, that's just sad. That's just really sad. Uh, I come to work to find friends. I come to work for that. But they don't because that's their number one Jordan. That's their God. That's the thing that they prize above all else. They're even willing to make themselves slaves to it to afford a lifestyle that they, to live a lifestyle they can't afford. He said next that we tend to work at our play. How many of y'all ever went on vacation and come back more exhausted than when you went? Or went a weekend and come back more tired than you went? People spend countless amounts of money, time, and energy to invest into having fun to the point where it's no fun at all because you're working at it too hard. And that's what he's talking about there. He says, and they play at their worship. And it's to worship haphazardly, to fail to prepare for it. No time spent in prayer or meditation before church or having some bed doing some Bible study on their own before you get to church to make sure you're in the right frame of mind. They sign to it a low priority in their life, something to do when they can't come up with an excuse as why not to come. They refuse to take it seriously solemnly. Something that you just can't do when you can't get out of it. Or something that you have to do just to get into heaven and 
you got to, you got to. In a text that was read earlier for us in John 4, 23, the Bible read that God tells us that He is seeking worshipers, nobodies, people who will worship in spirit and in truth, people who will take it seriously, that will make it as important to them as it is to God. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, when he took office and coming to the Oval Office, he says, okay, there's only two things that's ever going to be placed on my desk. He says, right here we're going to stack of the urgent things. And right here we're going to stack of the important things. Nothing else. If it doesn't fit into these two stacks, it don't go on this next. And he said it amazed him how the two never seemed to be the same stack. Something was either one or the other, and the two very seldom seemed to uh, mix. The urgent is loud, in your face, demanding, tyrannical, while the important is often quiet, deep, fulfilling, and meaningful. We must never let the urgencies of the world and life crowd out the important things that really matter as it did with the parable of the sower. Bills, jobs, possession, status, being somebody, these are the urgent things in our lives, but they are not important. What is important? God. God is important. To worship Him and Him alone. To enter ourselves and make ourselves available to Him. To become nobodies so He can make us somebodies. To say, here I am, Lord. Use me and fill me. If you can do these things, I can promise you all the happiness, all the glory and greatness you can ever imagine. You will be remembered, remembered by God and those that uh, lead to Him. Your name will live on eternally in the Lamb's book of life. In Ephesians 3, chapter 20, uh, I'm sorry. in 320 it says, God is able to do far more for the nobodies that love and seek Him than you could ever imagine or according to, uh, that you could ever think of. Worship, as Jesus told the woman at the well, isn't just tied to a place a city or a building or a time. In John 14, uh, 4, 19 through 21, it says, Sir, the woman said, You must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we in Samaritan claims it is here at the Mount of Gerizim? Where are our ancestors worship? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it all will no longer matter where you worship. The father of the, on the, uh, the father of this mountain or there in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, uh, and so Jesus says it doesn't matter. Remember, worship is, uh, is the contemplation of God. It is being absorbed in Him and Him alone. And the fact that He and He alone is supreme worth and is therefore worthy of us attributing to Him our praise. I awake in the morning, and God is there seeking, needing, desiring my worship. I'm living my life throughout the day at work or at home. God is there seeking my worship. Saturday afternoon, working in the yard or playing in the pool, God is there seeking your worship. God wants me to worship Him when I'm driving my Jeep down the road or the back trails. As I raise my children and care for my family, God is there wanting me to worship Him. When I'm alone or with others, God is there seeking my worship. At church, we do it collectively. We do it sometimes with our signs and sometimes with our words. When we sing songs of praise and glory to God, we're worshiping. With our prayers that are made up here, as we follow along with the person that's leading our prayers, we worship. When, we, when we're listening to the person giving the class or the lesson or the sermon, we worship. 
when we're reading our Bibles along with them, we're worshiping. Folks, God wants everyone to know that He is reaching. God's love is here for all the nobodies out there and never will be. So when you sing, don't sit there and do something. Sing for all your worth because you are singing for Him who is indeed worthy of our very best, is He not? To attribute to Him our sincere praise or gratitude or expressions of worth because He is worthy. To turn our full attention to the one and only worthy of Him. When you have true worship, there is something deeply satisfying and gratifying about it that no words could ever describe or express. And this morning I ask you, where is your worship? Is it as it should be? Is it worthy of our great God and all that He has done for you? Or have you merely been playing it? Have you emptied yourself so that He can fill you up? Have you let the urging of your life overshadow and overtake the importance of God in your life and of worshiping Him? To choke Him out as we saw earlier in the parable of the Son. Whatever the need may be, the one who is worthy, the one who is able, stands ready to help you as do we. Whatever the need may be, won't you please come and allow us to do so as together we stand in sin.